Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you want to work in Silicon Valley or the U.S. government, or if you want to have a big impact, or should I say a lean impact, and I'll explain more in a moment, then you'll want to stay tuned because my next guest has checked all of those boxes and has just written a new book to help Java junkies of all ages. But before I introduce Anne Mae Chang, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that gives you an overview of the five episodes we're dropping that week. And it's super easy to sign up. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and it's right there on the homepage. And while you're there, you can check out all the episodes we've dropped to date, which are organized by profession right there on the homepage. Whatever you're interested in, whether it's marketing and advertising or international affairs or sports or business, startups and entrepreneurship or engineering, computer science and IT, some of those categories are those that my guest can check the box on. So it's time to grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Anne Mae Chang, who is the executive director of Lean Impact at the Lean Startup Company. Previously, she served as the first executive director at the U.S. Global Development Lab within the U.S. Agency for International Development, also known as USAID. That's the U.S. government's agency responsible for funding and overseeing international development and humanitarian response. And prior to that, she spent about 20 years working in Silicon Valley at the who's who of tech companies, including Google, Intuit, and Apple. Anne May is also the author of the new book entitled Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. Anne May, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm so excited to be with you here today, Andrea. First, Huge congratulations on Lean Impact. Thank you. It's so exciting to have the book out in the world and hearing what people think of it. Why did you write Lean Impact, Anne May? And why do you think Java junkies, that those 18 to 25-year-olds in college, recent graduates who are interested in the world of social enterprises, nonprofits, government, whatever the case may be, should read it? Absolutely. You know, I think that this generation is the most socially conscious generation ever. I think people want, everybody wants to do well while doing good. People care about the, the society we live in and the planet we live on. And what Lean Pack does is regardless of whether you're trying to do good by working at a nonprofit itself or by donating your money or donating your time or in the choices you make and what you buy or where you invest, there are so many ways that we can make a difference. And so what Lean Impact does is look at how do we 
take the best practices that have led to this incredible pace of progress in Silicon Valley that has, you know, revolutionized everything around us and bring it to the world of social good. You know, as the pace of change continues to accelerate around the world, we need to figure out how we can get better solutions to the problems that we're facing around the world and get them to massive scale so that we can really move the needle. When we talk about scale and you and I both work together at a nonprofit, what is it that we're trying to telegraph to our audience and to our supporters? Well, so one of the things that I've noticed sort of having moved in my career from spending over 20 years in Silicon Valley into the kind of nonprofit government and social sector is that when we look at tackling social problems, the tendency is that we plan based on constraints, that we look at how many dollars we have, how many people we have, what resources are at our disposal, or maybe the size and scope of a particular grant that we're applying for. And we think, what can we do with what we have? And often that's not very much. Instead, how we need to shift our thinking is to think of the scope of the need to say, what is the need out in the world? You and I were working on a nonprofit that looked at ending extreme poverty. There's almost a billion people who are still living in extreme poverty around the world. And if that's the case, how do we think about that problem and that scope and ways that we can come up with solutions that really can reach an appreciable portion of that need? And I'm guessing that lean impact is the way. So why is it called lean impact, M.A.? Lean Impact is inspired by a book called Lean Startup. It is a book that came out you know, almost 10 years ago by Eric Ries. It was born out of Silicon Valley and the you know kind of best practices of innovation that he captured in this book. And at the heart of the book is really this notion of how, you know, something based on the scientific method, something very tried and true that's looking at how do we, when we're trying to create new products or services or interventions in the face of high uncertainty, how do we reduce our risk and learn as quickly as possible so that we can deliver solutions that really work? And at the core of the Lean Startup is something called the Build, Measure, Learn feedback loop. And like the scientific method, the idea of the Build, Measure, Learn feedback loop is that we come up with a hypothesis of what we think is likely to happen or what we hope will happen. We build a prototype or what Eric calls an MVP or minimum viable product to test that hypothesis. We then measure the results. We gather the data and then we learn. Did you know what we expect to happen happen, in which case maybe we can double down? If it didn't happen, if something went wrong, are there ways we can tweak our solution or tweak our experiment to prove it? And maybe if it was really far off target, do we need to take a completely different path? And so the core of Lean Startup is really about this build, measure, learn feedback loop and how quickly you can iterate through that cycle. Because the faster you can go through that cycle, the faster you'll learn, the faster you'll develop solutions that really, really work. And the lean in that is that lean is about reducing waste. And so when you spend a lot of time and money to learn a lesson and you fail big, you've wasted a lot along the way versus is if we can instead fail small and learn much more quickly the lessons that we need to learn, we'll stay lean and get to our solution much more effectively. Is there an example that you can offer, Anne May, from the book that you think makes this case? 
Well, so one example I really like is in Kenya, there was a social enterprise, there is a social enterprise in Kenya called Copia Global. And they wanted to be like the Amazon of rural Africa. And the idea is people who are poor and living in rural areas in Africa have very limited options in terms of the consumer goods they can purchase because they live far off from the cities and the you know their selection is very low. So Copia wanted to offer a catalog-based service where people could order the goods that they wanted and have them delivered from the city. You know, normally if you started a company like this, you would go about putting together some warehouses, hiring staff, putting together infrastructure to do shipping, all of this kind of stuff. That would cost a lot of time and money and it may not be something that people wanted. So before they did that, what they did was the CEO simply went to the supermarket in town and took pictures of products and pasted them into a few catalogs and gave them to some people who could serve as agents in these villages and look to see what would happen. When people would buy a product, the CEO would actually just go to the store, buy the product himself off the shelf, and then hand carry it to the village and deliver it. Now, certainly this is not something that would scale, but it's something that allowed them to get going really, really quickly. So in the course of a week, they could see whether people were willing to order, what kinds of products people were most interested in. And this helped inform sort of how they built out the business. The good news was that people really did want to order. But one of the things that they learned that they were surprised about was that they originally thought that they would work with kiosk owners, the people who are running the equivalent of kind of corner stores in these villages because they were already selling goods. But the kiosk owners didn't seem very keen on selling things from the catalog because they had all these products in their inventory that they're carrying that were more of a priority for them to sell. And so what it turned out is the people who were the best sellers were the people who were running complementary businesses like a hair salon where, you know, while people were waiting in line to get their hair cut, they could flip through the catalog, find things that they wanted to buy, and it'd be an additional stream of income for the store owner. And so those folks ended up being the best agents. So by running this kind of short experiment of just, you know, maybe it takes just a week or two, they learned a ton of things that could then help inform them as they built out their full business. So, Anne May, do you have an example of something that started small, but through kind of a lean impact approach has reached a massive scale? Yeah, I'd be happy to. One mistake that we make about innovation is that we think innovation is all about this sort of flashy new thing. And one story I love is the story of Vision Spring. And they took a 700-year-old innovation that is needed by two and a half billion people in the world and decided to look at how do we get this innovation out to the people who need it. And that's eyeglasses. And so Vision Spring is a nonprofit that got started to, you know, help people in the world get access to eyeglasses that could improve their productivity and their learning potential. And so they started out as any nonprofit might by going into a few communities and trying to distribute eyeglasses. They decided to sell them at a low cost. And they started out in El Salvador and India by recruiting these vision entrepreneurs that would go out and go to villages and sort of do eye exams and, and get people eyeglasses. They had some great stories from the early days about the difference that they made in people's lives, people who thought they couldn't see and were suddenly able to see. But what they realized quickly was that even though they were making a big difference in a few people's lives, they were losing money for everybody that they were serving. And so they weren't going to be able to get very far very fast to get to the two and a half billion people. So their first pivot was that they decided to start up a different model using a hub and spoke model where they would set up vision centers in more urban areas and sell to more upscale customers and use the profits there to subsidize outreach to the more rural areas. So it's sort of a cross-subsidy model. And with this, they they were able 
able to break even. They were able to become financially sustainable and be able to serve their customers on a financially sustainable basis. So that was a huge step forward. But even that way, they realized it would take them forever to build out the infrastructure and this hub and spoke model to get to two and a half billion people around the world. So they pivoted again. They decided to then go through partnerships of people, organizations that already had that infrastructure in place. And so one big partnership they set up was with an organization called BRAC in Bangladesh that has a network of community healthcare workers across the country. And so together with BRAC in Bangladesh, they were able to provide eyeglasses. The BRAC community health workers had an additional service they could provide, an additional source of income. And together, they've now sold more than a million pairs of eyeglasses across Bangladesh. And so they continue to develop that model, set up many more partners. Through that, they've been able to now reach four and a half million people. But even that is still far short of two and a half billion. And so they pivoted again. And their most recent pivot is that they started up something called the iLiance. It's a public-private partnership that brings together eyeglass manufacturers and governments and nonprofits and really looks at how do we change the system to fix both the market failures and the policy failures that are preventing people from accessing this important technology. And so one example of their success with the iLiance now is that they have an MOU with the government of Liberia that integrates vision care into their own government's community health worker network across the country of Liberia, as well as in the school so that students are being tested for their eyesight. And so through these kinds of evolutions, I think Vision Springs journey is really instructive in looking at how do we go from sort of a small enterprise that's helping a few people to really thinking about how do we make a massive change in the world? I love that example. And you call it an evolution. What was going through my mind as you told the story, Anne May, is that that to me sounds like quintessential iteration, the kind of iteration that you would see day in and day out in the private sector and certainly in the world that you came out of in Silicon Valley as an engineer where you're working on products, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think we mistake innovation too much for coming up with a sexy new idea. And if you think about it, Google didn't actually come up with search and Facebook didn't come up with social networking. What they did was instead be able to test and iterate and improve their products faster and better than everyone else by improving the user interface, improving their algorithms, improving their feature set. And that's something we don't do enough when it comes to social good. We tend to find solutions that are good enough that, you know, do some good and fall in love with our solution because we see that it's helping people. We see that it's doing some good. And so we try to get it out to as many people as possible. And we forget to look at ways we can make it even better. And that's really the core mindset shift that I'm hoping that we can make is to really not be satisfied with good enough, but really stretch ourselves to deliver the most good we possibly can. That is such an interesting insight. So I would think again in the private sector, that would be called you're still leaving money on the table. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And then maybe the analog here is that you're leaving impact on the table. Yeah. And so what you're saying is, guys, you are are onto something. Every time you take that program out to whether it's a different community or the same community and build on it, you are on the path to innovation. You've already put the investment in there. Yeah. And you've already put the investment in, but continue to look at ways that you can get better. We have a tendency to fall in love with our solutions rather than falling in love with the problem. And when you fall in love with the problem, you ask the hard questions. How could my solution be better? And and, in the book, I talk about three dimensions of social impact. There's three things that you have to optimize if you really want to not leave impact on the table, as it were. And the three things are value, growth, and impact. 
value is, is this something that people want, need, demand, will come back for, tell their friends about, something that is really essential to them? Because if people don't really want what you have to offer, you're not going to get very far. The second is impact. It's not enough that people want it. It has to have the social benefit and deliver the social benefit that you expect it to. And so that's something we need to measure. Not only does it have some impact, but can we find ways to maximize impact to have the most impact possible? And then the third is, you know, if we have something people want, if we can get it to them and it makes a big difference, how do we then get it to somewhere approximating the number of people who could really benefit from this? And it's only by fulfilling on all three of value, impact, and growth that I think we truly can have a successful social innovation. So when you started out, Anne May, as a young Java junkie who was an engineer working in Silicon Valley, did you have any idea <laughs> that you would be moving into government, be moving into the nonprofit world, and eventually be an author who's tying all those threads together? No, I, I had no idea. I think I would have been very surprised if when I was first starting out, you told me this is what I'd be doing now. That said, you know, pretty early in my career, maybe in my mid-20s or so, I had made a decision that I wanted to spend the first half of my career in tech in Silicon Valley, as I'd been doing, because it was, you know, very satisfying, very challenging. But then I decided I wanted to spend the second half of my career doing something that felt more meaningful, you know, taking my skills and really applying them wholeheartedly to something that could make the world a better place. And so I had no idea what shape and form that pivot might make. But, you know, as I got closer, I decided to focus on global poverty. So what was it that happened in your mid-20s that gave you that kind of insight into how you wanted your career to unfold? Well, it's really interesting. So it was actually a very specific event. In my mid-20s, I was working with a number of other women across Silicon, a number of other people across Silicon Valley on domestic partner benefits for same-sex couples. This is in the, I don't know, the early 90s when this was such a, still a rare thing. And one of the women who I knew who was doing this at Apple, I was at a company called SGI at the time, was a senior executive who was, you know, kind of more senior than the rest of us who were doing this kind of thing. Her name was Elizabeth Birch. And she was the head of litigation at Apple. And one day she announced that she was leaving Apple and going to move to DC to become the head of the human rights campaign. And the human rights campaign is a LGBT organization largest in the country. It just made me stop and think, wow, she's like this senior person in Silicon Valley and she's now going and running this nonprofit. You know, how cool is that? And I decided right then and there that I wanted to do something similar. I wasn't necessarily going to take the same path that she did, but I wanted to sort of mid-career, you know, take the experiences I had and look at what good I could do with them. I decided in my case to instead focus on global poverty. So when I left Google, I ended up going to the State Department. Right. And when you were at State, you were working on global women's issues, right? You were the senior advisor for women in tech. Yeah. So I joined the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the State Department as a Franklin Fellow, which is, you know, in some ways a glorified internship because I knew when I left Google that I had a ton of experience in the tech sector. I knew how to build software products, but I was entering into a completely different space that I knew very little about. And I recognized that. And so I knew I had a lot to learn. I thought the State Department would be a great place to learn. The State Department is at the center of so many things that happen around the world. They work with partners of every stripe. And so I thought of my time at state through this fellowship is sort of my custom master's in public policy. So rather than going back to school, I decided to go to work in a completely different realm and, and learn from some of the best and brightest. So 
I want to ask you one more question about this first time in government before I flash back to when you were at Silicon Valley. But do you remember how you got the Franklin Fellowship? And could you share with Java junkies what you need to be eligible for such a fellowship? Well, so my path was interesting because I knew I wanted to make this kind of change as I got close to the point that I was trying to figure out how I was going to make the change. I was still at Google and I decided to, because I knew I wanted to focus on global poverty while still at Google, shift my focus. And I ended up creating and leading a new division focused on emerging markets. And so that just brought me closer to a world that I knew I wanted to move into. And so in that role, I was invited to join a State Department delegation to Liberia and Sierra Leone. That was the first women's tech delegation, led by a woman named Anne-Marie Slaughter. I've heard of her. (laughs) Yes, she's fantastic. And so it was actually the first time I really met anyone from federal government. You know, I'd been in my Silicon Valley world for so many years. And, I, you know, really was eye opening for me learning what government does. I was really inspired. And so I remember in Sierra Leone, we're riding around in a motor pool car and Anne-Marie Slaughter and I are in the back seat. And I said, if I want to go work in government, like, how do I do this? I I don't even know. Like, do I take a test? Like, how does this work? (laughs) And she said, you should apply for Franklin Fellowship. And a few months later, I gave her a call and said, hey, I'm ready to do it. Like, tell me how to do it. And so it was through a connection with her that she referred me in, although you you don't need to have a connection to do it. But she was the one that told me about the fellowship. And it's a fellowship for people who are mid-career, who, you know, generally come from the business or academic world, who want to come contribute to the government in the State Department or at USAID in particular is where the Franklin Fellowship is focused for a year or two. Fantastic. You know, Anne May, it's actually, I think, maybe not a coincidence that someone who is an engineer by academic training would be reverse engineering their professional life. (laughs) I think that's something that's incredibly interesting. So when you were at Google, was the position that you were referring to that you helped create Senior Director of Emerging Markets? Yes. Can you talk about that role and maybe some of the other engineering jobs that you had at Google and what skills you were picking up during that time that you have been able to apply in your career as you've moved forward. So in leading emerging markets for Google, what we did is brought together a lot of the work that had been happening across the company on emerging markets. There's some work being done in Africa, some being done in South Asia, some being done in Latin America. And we've sort of brought all that together to look at the commonalities and the different types of products and the different types of devices that we would need to support in lower income countries. And so that was really what the emerging markets group did. It did really focus on two things. One is making Google's existing products work well in the contexts, so adapting for different cultures, adapting for different devices, but then also coming up with new products that might be more appropriate in these countries that didn't exist or weren't as much of a priority in the U.S., for example. But the biggest chunk of time I spent at Google was really leading our mobile engineering team. And so this was all our mobile apps and services. So if you've used Google Maps on your mobile phone or Gmail or Google Search or YouTube on your mobile phone, these were all products that the mobile team developed. And you know, when I started on the mobile team, it was still very early days. I started just about the time that the iPhone was released. And so mobile was going to be the next big thing for like at least five years running. And it just was constantly disappointed. 
disappointing every year. So it was a pretty low morale. People were, you know, getting a little frustrated because we weren't getting the kind of traction. And then the iPhone came out and soon thereafter, the Androids came out and, you know, we rode the wave. It was a really exciting time. We had these new devices with incredible capabilities that we never saw before. And it was, you know, such a great opportunity for innovation to try different things because we just had so many different capabilities to play with. And so it was a really exciting time. And in my experience at Google, I'm not sure that any of the skills directly translated to what I did next because it was such a dramatic shift in my career that, you know, I was no longer kind of building software. But a lot of the skills that you develop over time, or certainly for me that I developed, are less tangible skills, but that are equally applicable no matter where you are. You know, being a leader, leading large teams, how to have an organization be effective, how to communicate effectively, how to build relationships. These are all kinds of things that are really translatable regardless of different contexts. Although there's very different cultural norms in different organizations, certainly working in the government is a little bit different than working at a Google. And a little bit different than working at a nonprofit. And you and I sat on an executive team at a global nonprofit, Mercy Corps. And without going into much detail here, as you might expect, there were some pretty tense meetings that we had over the year that you and I worked together, not tense because of our interactions, but rather there were disagreements among executive team members and the CEO. And again, very natural for that to happen in any organization. One of the things that really stood out to me, Anne May, and something that I have come to really admire about you is how brave you were in speaking truth to power. And within some companies, organizations, whether they're nonprofit or for-profit, you can often have a dynamic in which a leader ends up surrounding themselves with yes men or women and doesn't welcome pushback or being challenged. And I'm not saying that was the case here, but gosh darn it, Anne May, that wasn't you. Where does that kind of courage come from? You know, I honestly can't say because I think that that's been in my nature from when I was young, that I guess I take the long view of things. And I think that it's important for wherever you are not to be unnecessarily combative or mean or anything. But I think it's important to speak the truth and that sometimes that can be difficult in a situation if it's something, a message that people aren't ready to hear or don't want to hear. But I think that in the long run, it doesn't help anyone for us to hold back because we all have an important perspective to offer. And sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. But putting it out there, I think, is really valuable so that we can look at the problem from all sides and come up with the the best way forward. And when I think we shut ourselves up, it causes oftentimes the wrong decisions to get made. We, we fall into groupthink that we are more focused in getting along and then we end up with those solutions that are just good enough as opposed to really breaking through and doing something spectacular. Well, speaking of doing something spectacular, after you left Mercy Corps, you went to work again in government at the U.S. Agency for International Development and were the first executive director. And I think, were you the first chief innovation officer? I was not the first chief innovation officer, but I did have that title. Executive director of the U.S. Global Development Lab. What are you most proud of from your time in that role? 
That's a tough question because when you're in a role like that, you know, I had a team of almost 250 people. There's so many things going on that I feel like I can't take credit for any of it because, you know, I only had a very small slice to do with anything that happened in the lab. But I think the the thing that I am most proud of overall with the lab, of what the lab was able to accomplish, is I think it really helped shift the mindset of both the agency and a lot of our partners in thinking about how we go about tackling the problems that we are in global poverty. And by that, I mean, we showed people through what we were doing in the lab and through the ways that we partnered with other folks that bringing in new technologies could be incredibly transformative. Funding in more innovative ways could really unleash creativity. These were things that were difficult to do in the more traditional style of development. And I think we just opened up the floodgates a bit. There's still a lot more work certainly to do. Government is not a place that changes quickly. But I think this is now part of the dialogue and will be there forever going forward. I remember talking with you while we were still at Mercy Corps and you were talking with me about your time at the State Department working for Secretary Clinton and Milan Verveer, who was the head of the Office of Global Women's Issues. And you were explaining to me about the power of policy change, getting back to our earlier conversation around scale. And if you mm-hmm. really want to reach scale outside of working in the private sector, one of the other ways that you can really have greater impact is through policy change. Do you still believe that? Absolutely. I mean, I think that if we want to change the system, we have to change policy. And one of the reasons that, you know, since I've made this shift out of Silicon Valley and into looking at ways to do something more meaningful that I've spent so much time in government is that while individual organizations can make a difference in their own domain, a lot of times, you know, where if we do want to get to the size of the need and if we really do want to change things in a permanent way, policy change is what gets us there. I think the two biggest levers of scale are really the private sector and government. And it depends on the kind of thing you're trying to scale. But for basic social services, government is really the provider at scale, whether you're looking at basic education or healthcare or social services. And so when we can make the government more effective at what it does, and when we can create policies that really serve people well, that has massive ripple effects around the world. So I want to flash back, Anne May to when you were a young Java junkie at Stanford and you were studying computer science. Did you know then what you wanted to do when you graduated? Yeah, you know, the first half of my career was fairly traditional in terms of being a software engineer. I went to Stanford. I was actually in the first undergraduate class at Stanford that majored in computer science. When I entered Stanford, there was no undergraduate computer science major. Now it's, I understand, it's the largest major by far at Stanford. Wow. Um, And I mean, this isn't like it's the 1970s. This was the mid 80s. Yeah, this is in the mid 80s. And in fact, my freshman year, I was asked to join a committee to define the computer science major as a freshman because they wanted some students who were going to actually major in this to be part of the discussion. So I helped define the first computer science major and was in the first class to graduate. And from there, being in Silicon Valley, majoring computer science is a fairly straightforward career path. I ended up working at a number of different tech companies, both big and small, starting out as a software engineer. I ended up moving into management pretty early early in my career, but spent 23 years basically working in the industry. So what was your first job out of Stanford? And do you remember how you got it? 
Yeah, you know, I worked at a company called DEC, or Digital Equipment Corporation, which doesn't exist anymore today. And I ended up going there first as a summer intern, my last summer that I was in college. I don't remember how I ended up with the summer internship. I don't think I knew anyone there. I applied for the summer internship. You know, summer internships are often easier to get than actual jobs because it's a lower barrier. They're only taking you for a few months. And so it's a good way to develop relationships and also learn to see where you might want to work. When I graduated, I, my first job was essentially being converted into a full-time employee at DEC, where I had already worked as a summer intern. Oh, great. So that was a nice soft landing for you. Yeah. And May, do you remember while you were still at Stanford, what kinds of extracurricular activities, you mentioned the internships, maybe there were clubs or other things you did outside of just studying or going to class that in hindsight, you look back on and say, oh boy, I was actually really honing skills then that have been helpful to me as a professional. You know, I didn't do a lot of extracurricular stuff at Stanford, in part because I ended up only being at Stanford for three years. So I kind of plowed myself into my studies and finished my degree quickly. I was eager to get out and eager to get into the workforce. The one thing I did do was I was involved with the LGBT group there, although I think the B and T were not yet part of the equation at that time. And right. and so, you know, was involved in some of the organizing there. But I think predominantly I was really studying I'm not surprised to hear that because you are a very thorough, conscientious person. So I could see you having done your undergraduate degree, cramming it all in there into three years. And May, one of the questions I try to ask all the guests on Time for Coffee is to share a time in their professional life when they struggled, whether it was challenging colleagues, a difficult boss, you're in over your head, although I honestly can't imagine that ever being the case for you. But nevertheless, it was a tough time. And more importantly, how you persevered and came through the other side. Maybe I can share two examples, one from early in my career and one from a little later. So early in my career, I worked at a company called SGI that I mentioned, and it was a computer workstation manufacturer also that doesn't exist. There's sort of a theme here that in the tech industry, <laughs> most of the companies I worked in for the first you know decade of my career probably don't exist anymore. But I worked for a project manager who was terrible. Um, and he eventually got fired. But in the process of working where for him and being frustrated that he was so terrible, I, you know, I would think about like, if I was doing this job, this is what I would do. And so after he was fired, I volunteered and said, Hey, let me manage the schedule or, you know, I'd be happy to run this and that. And so I ended up taking on some of his responsibilities and more and more over time after he left and became a manager very, very early on in my career as probably like 23 or 24 as I think the young youngest manager at the time at the company. Wow. And so it was a huge opportunity. You know, I was doing well in my career. And my boss, the engineering director there, was very supportive of me. And he gave me an opportunity to work on a new project that was getting started that I was really excited about. A few months after that, when I was just starting on this new project, he was out of the country and there was a big reorganization that happened. And in the process of this reorganization, this new project got moved under a different engineering director. That engineering director didn't know me from anybody. And he's like, who's this young kid who's like not managed before running this important new project? And he basically took me off the project, you know, while my, my old boss was still out of the country. And you know, I was now like stuck. I was in my early 20s as a new engineering manager with no nothing to manage. And, 
you know, I didn't know what to do. Like I, I didn't know enough about companies or reorganizations or company politics or anything to know how to navigate this. The one thing I did know is that I knew they kind of screwed me over. And I think they realized that, that, you know, I kind of got caught in between a bunch of stuff that really wasn't my fault. And so I thought about what I really wanted to learn at that point as a new manager. And I knew that I understood engineering pretty well, but I didn't know anything about managing people, honestly. So that was something I felt like I needed to develop more skills on. And so what I did was I asked them to do something crazy, which is let me go work in human resources for three months. <laughs> and so because I think they felt bad about this whole situation, they let me do it. And so I actually went over to human resources, did this sort of rotation around human resources and learned about how all the different functions work, learned about how we hired people, how we handled sensitive situations across the company, how we handled sensitive personnel situations, and learned a lot of things that helped me become a better better manager later on. And after those three months, another engineering management position opened up and I was able to step into that with a set of skills that I didn't have before. Fantastic. And I think I was going to tell you about a second example, which was much, much later in my career. I was at a startup company that you know was a very hyped startup company building a new product probably ahead of its time that would really revolutionize the way we communicate and socialize. And you know we spent a couple of years building this amazing product, spent a ton of money doing so. I was the head of engineering there, VP of engineering. I launched it into the world and had some passionate users, but didn't hit what we expected to. You know, we didn't have the same success we expected to. And maybe it could have been salvaged, but we had spent so much money getting to that point that, you know, we didn't have enough runway to fix it. And so and this is part of what inspired the book, ultimately, is sort of going through this experience of kind of failing big, sort of betting everything on this one thing that didn't quite work out perfectly. And because we just didn't have enough runway, I and you know at least half my team got laid off. And so we were tossed out on the street and trying to figure out what to do next. And it was in that moment that we were all sort of talking to each other, thinking about, you know, what are the different options out there is kind of in the towards the end of the dot com bus. So it wasn't like there were tons of engineering jobs out there. But we had some connections to Google and our CTO had gone to school with Larry and Sergey. And so I ended up interviewing at Google. Most of the folks that had been laid off also interviewed at Google. So I think at least half of the team went over to Google in the end. And that ended up being a very good choice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing both of those stories, Anne May. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Stanford and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think if I went back now, I would probably take more time. I would take the full four years. I would use the time, you know, really both enjoy the time more and learn more things outside of my direct kind of career in computer science. College is such an opportunity to learn and to explore and to broaden kind of our horizons. And I, I think I missed some of that kind of graduating so quickly and really being focused so much on computer science. Well, Anne May, it has still led you to a phenomenal career and a fantastic new book entitled Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater 
social good. I hope Java junkies who are interested in, as I said, whether it's social entrepreneurship, the world of nonprofits, the world of government, and frankly, the private sector world will buy it and read it and learn from it because Anne May is somebody who is, if you haven't already picked up on, a very thoughtful woman. Anne May, thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community today. I really enjoyed hearing more about your career. Well, thanks so much for having me, Andrea. It was great to reconnect with you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. 